This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to HR and Happy Hour. It's 5 o'clock somewhere, and somewhere's Bushwick. I'm Kat Johnson. Join in studio, as always, with my co-host and HR and Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler. And of course, we've got the talented David Tattashore in the booth, making sure we sound great and have plenty of sound effects. What up, what up? Yo, David. <laughs> so, Kat, it's been a little while since we've talked about Charleston, a hot minute, hasn't it? Yeah. So uh, luckily today we're joined in studio by the delightful team behind one of our favorite events of the year, the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. And we're so happy that we are welcoming Jillian Zettler, Executive Director of Charleston Wine and Food. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for joining us. I'm so excited to be here. We're glad to have you. So Jillian, I'm going to give you a quick rundown of how things work on our show, HR and Happy Hour. We kick things off with some rapid fire headlines from this week on the network. And then we shout out a few industry events, both Uh, past and present. And then from there, we move on to our in-studio interview to find out more about you. And then we're going to talk about the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We always end our show with trivia. So this week, the trivia is Charleston appropriate. uh, Oh, geez. No pressure. Full of crummy jokes. So (laughs) it's about biscuits. All right. We're very excited. The jokes will be so crummy. (laughs) So crummy. Uh, And then we're actually, we're we're getting out of here a little early. We'll tell you why in a minute. Um, And we're going to end the show with an interview we did earlier, um, a couple months ago, with Chef Michael Toscano of Le Farfalle, who also happens to be a Charleston guy. So it's a Charleston-themed show. All right. So let's get started. We're going to do our rapid-fire headlines. There we go. There it is. All right. Uh, First up, Michael Harlan Turkel has a double serving of bread this week. He's a real breadhead. On the food scene, he talks with Sullivan Street bakery owner Jim Leahy about his new cookbook and life as a breadhead. Episode three of Modernist Breadcrumbs on the Rise takes a microscopic look at yeast, leavening, and fermentation. Make sure you check that show out. I see what you did there on the rise. On What Doesn't Kill You This Week, host Katie Kiefer interviews author Carrie Gilliam about her book, Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. Gilliam Gilliam has spent over a decade researching and writing about Monsanto and glyphosate, and Whitewash describes the perfect storm that has led to the rise of the world's most popular agrochemical. Recommended reading with Food Book Fair goes beyond bagels and babka this week with the Jewish Food Society. In a preview of its upcoming storytelling event, Schmaltzy, JFS founder Nama Sheffi and Schmaltzy special guest Marissa Lippert of the Nourish Kitchen and Table talk about Jewish foods around the globe. Food Without Borders looks domestically this week as uh, special guest host Leah Kurt speaks with culinary historian Michael Twitty. Michael's new book, The Cooking Gene, A A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South, traces the history of Southern cuisine, family ancestry, and African-American identity in the U.S. And lastly, host Sam Ben Ruby gives us a great preview of the upcoming Raw Wine Fair on the Great Nation with Raw founder Isabel Legeron and natural winemaker Tony Katuri of Katuri Winery in Sonoma County. We'll be covering Raw's New York Fair November 5th and 6th as part of HRN on tour. Awesome. Well, that's the end of our headlines this week. But it's not the end of our news because it's Cider Week here in New York City. And we are partying hard for ah, the occasion. 
hard like the cider. <laughs> uh, our Cider Week event, we've been doing so many puns for Modernist Breadcrumbs, you guys. We're like really we're, on a roll. We're hardwired. On a roll. We love puns at Charleston Wine and Food. <laughs> good, good, good. So our Cider Week event is tonight. It's the old adventures of the new town, Pippin, exploring history, terroir, and biodiversity through cider. We're hosting the event at our home office, 100 Bogart. We have cider experts Stan Pucci and Darlene Hayes, and also Ryan Burke from Angry Orchard. We'll be getting really nerdy about apples and talking about cider terroir. Last-minute tickets, and I mean really last-minute, are still available at eventbrite.com. So if you can head over to Bushwick right now, you will make it, and uh, I would even happily take your money at the door. So (laughs) come on over. We'd love to see you. Um, So also, I just saw, poking his head through the window, Jimmy Carboni. He's obviously the host of Beer Sessions Radio and uh, host of our show intro today is hosting his annual Cider Week event this Saturday, October 28th. Cider Feast is the first Jimmy's Number 43 pop-up event happening at the Brooklyn Kitchen's Williamsburg space. Tickets are $45 and include three hours of all-you-can-drink cider samples and food tastings. So get on that. $15 an hour for, like, (laughs) so much food and drinks. I like thinking about it that way. Yeah, yeah. You you can do this, (laughs) Pay by the hour. Hope Um, to see you there. So super excited about Cider Week, but I want to recap a couple of events that we have had this week. Um, earlier this week, we attended the James Beard uh, James Beard Foundation Food Summit and the Leadership Awards Center. The summit's theme this year was consuming power, and it was full of hard-hitting discussions about the power we all have when we think of ourselves as participatory citizens instead of passive consumers. We will be publishing all the talks as podcasts on Heritage Radio Network on tour soon. We also had a really amazing time at the JBF Leadership Awards Center, where honorees included Dan Barber, Olivier DeShooter, Joan Dye Gussau, Joanne Lowe, and Jose Oliva, and the Honorable Shelley Pingree. Go Maine! Yeah. Um, dinner was prepared by our friend, Chef Steven Satterfield, and the theme of his menu, which I love this, was food waste. He, When he got to town, he took a trip to the Union Square Green Market where he purchased food at the very end of the day that was going to be basically waste. Um, he saved a lot of vegetables from being tossed out. He said he got um, greens that were kind of wilty. They'd been out in the sun, and he threw them into ice water and kind of brought them back to life. It was so delicious and such a great theme. Um, and lastly, one other recent event I want to shout out happened just last night. We were at the Charleston Wine and Food uh, Festival's evening baking session here in the West Village. Carrie Mori of Callie's Hot Little Biscuit was helping guests bake their own biscuits. There was wine and music courtesy of Femio Rodian and lots of delicious cheese and charcuterie. It really got me in the Charleston spirit. Perfect timing for our interview today. All right. So now to our interview part. That was a great transition, right? It was a great transition. Uh, So Jillian, thanks so much for being here. Um, We we have done Charleston Wine and Food Festival two years in a row now, and we're doing it again this March, and we're so excited to be uh, heading down to party with you guys again in March. I know. Those teepees. It's coming soon. I can't wait. (laughs) Um, Did you mention the dates, Kat? We're going to be February 28th to March Yes. Charleston's 13th year. 13. I can't believe it. We're more than a decade. We're a teenager now. That's you're incredible. Like, you're out of your tween years. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully not as awkward. <laughs> um, so we, we saw that you actually did some radio in college. 
I did. Well, I, I did radio right out of college. So awesome. I was an education major and I, I really through a friend who had a good gig. She uh, was moving to Charleston to take on another radio position and thought I would be pretty good at it. So I did promotions and marketing for a cluster for a while. And it's actually what kind of led me down the event path. So I'm very, very thankful for it. Awesome. Um, so how did you get first get involved in the Charleston Wine and Food Festival? I was running a smaller um, boutique food, wine, and music festival called Euphoria in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, And the founding executive director was leaving um, after nine years at the helm and a little vacillating um, about whether or not to throw my hat in the ring. But I mean, Charleston is just a beautiful place to live. And to think that there was an opportunity to produce a more logistically challenging event um, in such a gorgeous city where people, you know, you just can tell when you visit Charleston that people are so proud of the food culture there that it just felt like it would be a really wonderful professional challenge to take on. And it's a long interview process, but I'm really glad that I, I stuck it out and I'm super proud that it was me. And how long have you been the executive director? This will be the fourth festival at the helm, which I can't even, I can't even believe four years in Charleston went by like lightning fast. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what have been some of your favorite, like unexpected things about living in Charleston year round? Cause it's, we, we get to see it at like one of the heights of the year, I think for a lot of people, but what's like day to day Charleston living like? I mean, I think it's just one of those things where you, you'll be driving and, it could be like dusk coming back from, you know, grabbing wings at home team on Sullivan's and you look around and you're like, holy cow, this is where I live. You know, the way that you get to watch the marsh grass change color through the seasons. And it just feels like there's always an amazing time to be outside and find something new. And people are just genuine, genuinely just really happy about where they live. And that feels really awesome. So Jillian, tell us about the festival this year and uh, what's new and uh, who are you excited about who's on the lineup? Well, I think one of the things I'm most proud of with the with the new team that kind of got thrown into place four years ago is we made a conscious, a conscious decision that we were going to change up about 85 to 90 percent of the programming every year, um, partially to keep, you know, ourselves on our toes and, and push the boundaries of creativity, but also um, to make guests feel like they never knew what was coming next. Um, and it allows you to be fresh, right? And, and, and kind of respond to what is interesting and happening in the food and hospitality community. So, I mean, I think I love the diversity in our, in our events that you can do something like really refined or cerebral, but you can also do something like crazy late night cut loose. Um, and you see like a total mix of, of people, um, kind of melding together and enjoying all of those things. I hear there's an event happening this upcoming year called uh, Queens on King. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I can. So I don't even like we we normally after the festival is done, we kind of like do a week of getting things in storage, a week of like becoming human again, because we're all kind of scary looking. Um, And then we like camp out in a retreat for a week to really just like throw a ton of things up against the wall and see what will stick. And I don't even really remember how it came to be, but we decided that we, um, people were really responding to brunches. I mean, who doesn't love brunch? Um, And we wanted to do something that would really like juxtapose a really cool space in Charleston, but that shows like how 
how forward thinking and cool Charleston can be to kind of marry a bunch of different things together. So we're actually doing a drag brunch in one of the most historical properties on King Street. Yes. Um, And it's very apropos that it's on King Street because we're calling it Queens on King. I am so excited about that. We're so excited about it, too. And, you know, there are some killer, killer brunches and drag brunches. So um, there's going to be definitely a collaborative spirit. And um, I think it's going to be pretty, pretty freaking awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else that's new as far as, you know, a session that you've added or uh, anything changing in the format of Culinary Village that you can give us a sneak peek for? Oh, goodness. You know, the Culinary Village is like just this massive thing. And it's always like, how can we maximize all of the square footage that's in there? Um, I mean, I, it's it's certainly not going to look exactly the same. But I think what we, lo- we love is that it's come to be this like people line up now at noon to get in the gates. Um, we're going to have some killer sessions on the main stage. And I think maybe some surprise musical guests, which would be really cool. Cool. Um, you know, we're doing a really fun event um, on the Saturday called Brunch Squad with Ellen Bennett. I know I'm talking about brunch a lot, but um, <laughs> that should be really cool. Kind of a mashup with William Sonoma and Cherry Bomb Magazine and um, just a lot of our favorite folks from all around the globe. The gals from Kismet are coming in from L.A. and Michael Salmanov and hosted at Workshop, which is our brand new um, kind of food hall concept in Charleston. So that should be really great. And a ton, I mean, I think some of my favorite things are excursions, which are really like gritty kind of food field trips that we do. Um, And so there's a lot of opportunities to kind of hop on a bus, explore somewhere really interesting, and hopefully learn a little bit more about Charleston. Amazing. No, and, and uh, so oh. HRN space has always, uh, you know, been the teepees. And if you just look at the last two years, we've grown exponentially. So we had the one, and then last year we had a double teepee. So of course, this year we're going to have the quadruple teepee, right? So that we can uh, <laughs> no, it'll be a field of teepees. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're just before gonna we know, gradually it. take over the culinary village with like a whole teepee storm. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, we will be there, and we're really looking forward to putting together some killer programming again Us this year. Too. Us I think too. last year we had something like sixty guests. Uh, on our stage over the three days that we were there. So we're uh, definitely aiming high again oh, this you year. Oh, you guys work your tails uh, we just off had the, I mean, you guys attract the coolest people, and uh, our lineup was just incredible because of everybody who was excited yeah. to be there. So we're really looking forward. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about, I don't think maybe many people realize, but Charleston Wine and Food Festival is a nonprofit. It is. Can it's you- a 501c3. So tell me a little bit about wh- why why it's a nonprofit and, and you know what your mission is. Yeah, so you know the festival started in 2006. It was founded as a 501c3 organization, and a lot of people don't realize that there are certain you know there's food, a lot of food festivals at this point, many of which are for profit. Um, and the festival's gone through like a variety of iterations on what the give back has looked look like. But we're really really excited at this point. Like we really dialed in on what we feel like our higher purposes, and talk a lot about meaningful connections, and you know being a catalyst for you know like finding a sense of place and all of the things that we do. And, you know, so we really talked about what the give back was going to look like moving forward. And there's this really wonderful program locally in Charleston called the 180 place training program. And basically what they look to do is to, um, bring folks into the program that are looking to turn their life around and using a a work skill to do that. And so they have this really robust culinary training program that ends in an externship. We were lucky enough to get 
um, a few of the students on site at the festival last year, all of which who ended up um, claiming jobs with the folks that they worked with, which was really awesome to see. And it also kind of responds to a direct need that we're hearing about in Charleston, which is, you know, that they're, they're needing more qualified labor to fill the kitchens of all these fabulous restaurants that are opening up. So it really kind of hits on um, two really important points for us. And I know that for my team, there's just a new kind of intrinsic motivation to just make this festival as, as amazing as it possibly can be and um, have a give back that we're really proud of. And roughly how many people attend uh, the Charleston Wine and Food Festival? So last year, our numbers are usually a little over 23,000. Um, and, you know, I, I want to say that that's like pretty much at the max of what we're going to get. So again, kind of hearkening back to that sense of place, we really don't want to like jam a ton of people into Charleston. We want them to be able to feel and experience the city in a really breathable way. Um, so, you know, we're really lucky. We design program programs that we think are going to rock the tickets sell out. And sometimes the biggest, you know, criticism that we get is that there isn't enough love to go around. So awesome. All right. Well, on that note, we are going to move to our trivia. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and no we're going to say feel free for you the studio audience to jump in here <laughs> and help do. out. Because these questions are pretty hard. They're pretty hard. Um, yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. I'll use my lifeline. So, yes. Kat, do you want to start us off? Yeah. Okay. So, question number one. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, what was the original spelling of biscuit? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'll give you a hint. It's B-I-S-K-I-T? Oh, you're close. That was really close. B-I-S-K-U-T? E-T. E-T. So close. All right. I, so yeah, close. I was going to like be like, go phonetic, but you like totally nailed it. All right. Question number two. What is the meaning of the word biscuit? Oh, my gosh. Fluffy deliciousness <laughs> that fills your belly when you're tired. <laughs> We're going a little more for the literal <laughs> translation of the root words. I want to accept that answer. Where yeah, that's is Carrie Mori when you need her? <laughs> the meaning of the word biscuit comes from the Latin biscoctus, and it means twice baked. All right. Biscoctus. Okay. That doesn't really mean, I don't know. That's not how I make biscuit. I only bake it once. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. It's a little confusing. That, I get that with the biscotti. Yeah, uh, yeah, true. Yeah, I might challenge that one. I always, I always have a question in trivia that I challenge. <laughs> yeah, you do. Week. <laughs> All right, question number three. What is biscuit weather? Biscuit weather. Well, it was certainly last night. So whatever last night's weather were, <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of biscuits going down the hatch. <laughs> I... I love like er, Sunday mornings are some of my favorite times. So I say Sunday morning with a really great cup of coffee. I like that too. It actually is snowy weather in reference to <laughs> white flour. And I'm from Vermont. So, I mean, really, what am I doing? Now you can use that term next time you go back to Vermont. <laughs> it's biscuit weather, guys. All right. Uh, all right. Question number four. On which classic Nickelodeon show does the character Random Fish Kid say, I had four biscuits, then I ate one. Now I only have three. The The key word in that is the, the, is the random fish kid. It's a Nickelodeon show. SpongeBob SquarePants. There you go. Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> See, being a mom meant something somewhere. <laughs> and our last question. This is my favorite question. I like this one. Biscuits and tang aren't a breakfast combo. What sport uses those two terms as equipment names? Biscuit and tang. I'm looking at my phone of friends over here. Blind biscuits, like a 
polo? Hockey's pretty close. A flying biscuit, right? What's a tang, though? What is a tang? I got nothing. It's I, like, I think I'm right about this. It's like a stick with sort of a hooked thing on the uh-huh, end. Uh-huh. Oh, curling or something? That's very You're close. getting warmer. Uh-huh. Think curling without Shuffle, ice. Field? Shuffleboard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got it. <laughs> Lots of help from the audience. Good job. Good job. That was, that was some of our most challenging trivia yet. I Ooh, think. I'm yeah. sweating. All right. Well, we'll cool you right down with some cider and just a yeah. few minutes here. I like it. We got to get over to our cider event. All right, um, that's our show. We are running off to set up for our Cider Week event, so we'll leave you with an interview we did recently with Michael Toscano of Lefar Folly in Charleston. Michael is the chef owner of the modern Italian Osteria that he opened with his wife, Caitlin, in t- 2016, and he's one of our Charleston favorites. Um, Jillian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks we, so much. We can't wait to see you in Charleston. Me too. Me too. <laughs> We're going to have lots of wonderful weather for you to step into when yes. you come down, get you out of that gray New York time. March is the perfect time to like get out of the New York. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Thanks so much to Jordan Werner for producing this show and to Dave Tatashore, our stalwart engineer. My name is Brandon Boy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. You're listening to HRN Happy Hour. I'm Katie Bozeman-Wadler, and I'm here with my co-host, Kat Johnson. Hello. Our special guest today is Chef Michael Toscano of Le Farfalle in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, we are here to talk about a few things, but welcome, Michael, to our new office at 100 Bogart. Amazing. Thank you for having me. Um, so first of all, you are in New York for something very special at the Seaport Food Lab. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what's happening there and what you're cooking? Yeah, so they, they redid the whole seaport and it's pretty exciting all the getting to see the liveliness that's down there now. Um, I guess after the storm they, they redid the whole thing and um, Dale was invited to, to cook there and then brought me on as, uh, as his guest and uh, Dale's all the great friend of mine. Um, who, who cooks great food and I, I always love collaborating with him. I, I had him down in Charleston for the food and wine and food festival and uh, we had a great time so another opportunity to get together and, and cook is always, uh, we always love to do that. So uh, we're there, we, we cooked uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, yesterday and then today is my last day. He'll be there uh, for another few days with uh, Bo Schuler from, uh, from Alaska. But um, yeah, we've had a great time cooking great food, and uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun. What does the menu look like? Uh, it's uh, you know a little little his flavors, a little mine. You know, I did a, uh, a version of like a shaved porchetta over uh, these uh, baked cannellini beans that have black garlic and balsamic, and finished with chicharrones and a uh, spicy clam glissato. I made my uh, rosemary focaccia with a uh, a taleggio butter, and then made uh, a what else? The my pulpette alla siciliana with uh, grilled octopus, um, 
And then one of my one of my dishes that are about to come out on the on the fall menu is a zitoni, which is a uh, a long think of a, a ziti but long like a spaghetti, um, where we're taking that and ta- I, I'm taking the flavors of a dish that I grew up eating, my Mexican background, uh, menudo, so tripe and hominy and oregano and and kind of made a ragu. Um, in a very Italian sense, but with those flavors and incorporating those ingredients with the hominy and, and making this beautiful stock out of pork shank, um, getting to bring that together and dress this really chewy, beautiful fat noodle—it's uh, really delicious. So I'm I'm excited about that dish. I've been cooking that at the seaport. Awesome, and that's coming out at Le Trafalgar. Yeah, absolutely. When is the when's that going to be on? The as soon as I get back, <laughs> the the storm kind of got my the storm got in my way of changing the menu before this trip, and right when I get back, we'll start kind of overhauling the menu for the the season change. So let's talk a little bit about the storm. So Hurricane Irma just came through. Um, we were in Atlanta at that time, so you hear about it on our um, uh, Chefs Collaborative Summit coverage. But we, I guess, didn't realize that it was going to hit Charleston basically at the same time. It got to be 400 miles wide. Exactly. So what was the impact like for you in Charleston? And were you expecting the storm? Were you prepared? I mean, it's, uh, it's something that you get used to, at least in my first two years of operating. You know, last year we got hit with uh, Hurricane Matthew, um, which you know, caused us to close for four days. Mm-hmm. Um, that, Heard pretty good, and uh, this one we were, you know, bracing for the worst because at the beginning of the predictions it was coming right for us, which would have been very bad. But uh, ended up ended up turning west and uh, missed us, but you still get affected by it pretty heavily. Us being right on the water, so the storm surges brought the water over the uh, over the seawall, you know, kind of flooding the lower peninsula. Um, the waters receded pretty quickly and, and there was definitely damage on houses and a few businesses but uh, we were you know made it through unscathed and it was uh, it was it was no issue for us other than having to close for a day and uh, and of course it slowed down business which is never fun but uh, but yeah it wasn't it wasn't too bad so hopefully yeah, I believe there's another one coming through that we're bracing for again and hopefully it doesn't affect anything so yeah we're gonna knock on wood yeah <laughs> There's like a whole queue of them acting mysteriously uh, yeah, in Atlantic right. right now. Um, so your move to Charleston was like pretty famous. Um, you were in New York City before. Um, you seem to be really happy in Charleston. Do you miss cooking in New York? You know, it's being on the big stage here in New York is always, of course, amazing. And uh, I would never take back the years that I was in New York. It was, you know, some of the best time of my life. But at this stage in my life with my, my family, my wife, Caitlin, and my two kids, uh, I love Charleston. It's been fantastic. Um, you know, we're still doing what we love in the restaurant, you know, cooking amazing food. And being in Charleston, we haven't had to change anything that we do. We, we're still pushing and trying to operate at a, a very high standard and, and getting to do what we love. So in that respect, we haven't had to sacrifice at all. And that's been amazing, and that's always the worry of leaving New York, you know. But uh, moving to Charleston, having that, but then also having the quality of life for my children has been uh, has been amazing. So yeah. it's it's the best of both worlds, and we're so happy, so happy there. Yeah. And you recently celebrated the first birthday of the restaurant. That's right. Um, now I read that there were maybe a few differences in kind of your 
your guests between New York and Charleston. Pasta is like a much bigger thing. People order heavy on pasta. Um, how have you adapted to that? Um, maybe adapted the menu a little bit, and maybe how are you pushing people to think outside the box a little bit? Well, you know, it's you know, as much as I wish I um, could take my similar menus and bring it right to Charleston and, and it'd be well accepted. Um, I had to restrain myself a little bit, you know, make things a little more crowd pleasing and, and kind of, it's just testing the waters, seeing what, what takes and what doesn't. And that whole first year is just test after test and getting feedback and really listening to, to our neighbors and our guests and, and listening to all those um, different comments and feedback and reviews or whatever they are and taking as much as we can from it because at the end of the day you're in a different place you can't operate the same way as you do especially in a place like New York City mm-hmm. um, so it was a learning huge learning experience for us um, where you know in, in, in New York it tends to be pasta heavy as well but um, it was a matter of like what, what, what I was putting on those different dishes and what made sense and what they uh, really loved and what they didn't love and what would have loved they loved what would they, what would they have loved in New York that they didn't love in Charleston that I was like really how do they not like this and um, so just paying attention to that being smart about uh, um, having everybody really enjoy everything and 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 making sure it's a popular busy restaurant so as we're through that first year we're going into the second year and we have a great understanding of it. And uh, I think we get to, not that we weren't pushing, but we get to kind of push what we've already done. And we've gained people's trust and start to, to kind of push into a even more exciting, uh, newer combinations and, and really test uh, um, what we've done so far. So I'm really excited going into the next year and as we start changing the menu um, in these next few iterations, it's gonna be, uh, it's gonna be great because we're, we're pushing hard for sure. And then you're using a lot different ingredients than yeah. you would use in New York. So what are some things that you're particularly excited about that I you mean, get to play with? Yeah, it's, it's having, having the, uh, all the amazing seafood that's right there that's coming in and you know the fishermen, you know the shrimpers, you know these people and their families and, and what they do and how proud of their ingredients they are and you get to have that direct con- connection with those people. So that kind of organic way of receiving our product is just, it's amazing. Um, and that, I didn't have that in New York. Although the world is at our fingertips in New York, you know, you don't have those relationships. And that's kind of the essence of being in Charleston. All those relationships that you have that you make time for. You make time to, to know who they are, what they're doing, how special it is. Respect that, support them, support our local people who are working really hard and, and producing amazing stuff. Um, you know, I, I get a whole hog every week from uh, a very good friend of mine, Tank Jackson, who owns Holy City Hogs, and his his pigs are amazing, and he's a great guy, and his wife Christian and his family. You know, so having these relationships and being friends with these people who are so proud, and then so proud when they see them in our restaurant, and the respect that we pay to those ingredients, and getting to utilize uh, what's from right around us and make special food it's it's there's nothing better than that that's what it's all about what do you do with that pig when you get it in every week so every week uh you know part of it goes to um, the shoulders and the hams we we grind and we make our bolognese we make our meatballs 
we make the uh, sweet Italian sausage for some of the different pasta dishes or different sausages, pâtés, guanciale, pancetta. Um, we make a head cheese. We make pork chops. Um, I mean, so depending on the week, it could be completely different, but it's, uh, you know, that's the fun and the challenge for our cooks and, you know, for what we're doing, it's, it's always changing. Um, but having such a great a base ingredient to do with whatever, do whatever with, it's, uh, it's easy, you know, it makes it easy. So we always have grains on the mind, it seems like, you yeah. know, we're doing a lot, um, we're releasing our bread show in a couple of weeks. Very cool. Modernist bread crumbs, so we're like really, really in the spirit, but you've been, um, experimenting with a lot of different types of grains sure. for pastas. Tell us about that and uh, what have been like maybe some of the successful experiments, what are your inspirations and uh, anything that we should definitely not try at home? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I don't think you can go wrong. It's just a matter of understanding how they react, their protein levels and, and for pastas specifically, you know, how much flavor they impart versus how they change the texture of your final product. Uh, I use sorghum, which uh, people in the south, you know, I'll say, oh, that would be really cool if we, you know, toasted the sorghum and then milled it and incorporated it into a flour and see how that reacted and uh, the flavor that came from it and, you know, what it ended up imparting was like that chew that you get when you eat like a, a udon mm -hmm. uh, or soba rather and the texture, the kind of rustic texture um, of like a... Uh, of like a buckwheat uh, noodle. So you have the sorghum that adds this kind of aromatic toastiness um, to the dough, adds a, a different color, and when people read it on the menu, they'd be like, why, why is there sorghum thinking it's sorghum syrup? Yeah, I, I think they, it's That's all they know. Sweet. That's all yeah. they know. They're like, why is it sweet? Even people would be like, I don't like this pasta, it's too sweet. They're like, Man, there's no, there's no sorghum syrup in it. It's not like logical at that point. It's milled and there's zero sweetness to it. So uh, you just don't want to like this dish. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> um, so that's been, I love the texture of that. We make a sorghum pappardelle. We did a morichetti with it. Um, the, uh, we get a, a buckwheat that we toast um, from Anson Mills and the, the flavor is just incredible and I did that with the cacio e pepe where and that's that's kind of what I love doing is taking um, a classic dish and just changing it very subtly like that and it that buckwheat added such a beautiful aromatic toasty flavor to um, to that pasta and it went perfectly with that you know really pungent pecorino and a little bit of parmigiano black pepper from the spice and uh, it would really well together. I love that one. It's uh, something that I'll do for a long time. But uh, getting that that buckwheat that they had for us and, and toasting it, it, it adds unbelievable texture and flavor. Um, so for those, it's just, you know, playing with the, the ratios of how you incorporate that. Because rarely am I using it 100%. It's always accentuating flavor and texture more than being the only thing that's used. So I, I'm using it, and I know some people mill, they'll, they'll mill wheat and that's all they'll use. We're doing it more because we, we're using double zero from, from, uh, um, from Italy and we're incorporating those flowers together to make a, a really sexy, beautiful dough that uh, we're able to, to produce the same way we would our, 
or simple pasta, mm-hmm. pasta recipes. So, Are you seeing a lot of demand for gluten-free pasta? Absolutely. And, and do you cater to that? We do. Yeah, yeah we make a couple different types. and um, There's a great, uh, Rusty Cella makes a, a corn fusilli that's uh, unbelievable. Um, really, really good. And then we make a couple different types of, uh, like a fettuccine and, uh, and then extruded as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's very important. Yeah, we don't take that lightly. We, we make sure that it's done well and that everybody has the opportunity to experience our pasta. Yeah, that's awesome. There's, I have friends who get excited about some gluten-free pastas, and I've tried them, and it's, it's hard to find a delicious sure. gluten-free pasta. Yeah, so I mean, it's great to you know. there's definitely bad ones out there. Yeah. <laughs> we won't have any names, yeah, but they exist. Yeah. <laughs> For so sure. when you find a good one that like you can't even tell the difference, yeah, it's 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 fun because then you see the people who are like so bummed that they can't have gluten, they don't want to not eat gluten, but they can't because it makes them feel bad. And then when restaurants aren't sensitive to that, it's it's a bummer, you know. Yeah. So when you see the excitement on their face when they get to eat a really nice gluten-free pasta, it's it's cool. Um, I read that you you said that at one point your menu has gotten simpler mm-hmm. um, after the first year. Is that because of the ingredients you're working with and you just kind of want to showcase them more or based on people's preferences? I think at first it was on preferences and not wanting to scare people away. Um, I tended to get a little too out there and like, not, not that my food is crazy by any means, but just uh, it's it's almost an intimidation factor of sometimes when you're mixing Italian and people don't you know I, I think uh, asking friends around me like read this menu and tell me if you understand any of it because it's I have blinders on sometimes and I write it I'm like yes well, I love the way that reads blah 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 but then you give it to someone and and you know they're like I have no idea what any of this is and I'm like well that's not good <laughs> you know so I felt like going into a new market. Um, I wanted to try to make it a little more approachable and understandable and and you know gain trust and then get them excited about whatever I was coming up with you know future menus uh, not that, that we weren't excited about the food it was still uh, you know we were still executing and, and making sure that the ingredients were amazing and um, but it was part wording part uh, um, making the food approachable and you know we're we're Kind of going to the next level now for sure into the second year as we've developed our fan base and mm-hmm. and you know we have a strong following of our neighborhood and the surrounding people so definitely i mean that was definitely part of part of opening for sure and i want to ask you about your team mm-hmm. um did you work with uh, many of the people that you brought on to la Farfelle before or were they you know more local charleston folks that you found the, the kitchen was for the most part brought in um all people i worked with or had relationships with and they they came in and so we were able to really hit the ground running from the beginning with a, a great team uh, the front of the house you know it was hiring all local people um, which there are a lot of great ones and we've hired so many good people and over the first year that was definitely you know a very difficult task as anyone knows who opens a restaurant or where you're at um, but you know we didn't have anything to start with. We hired everybody on the spot and had to get them to understand, you know, how we do things. So that's an undertaking in itself. And, you know, we pushed hard and we still push every day. We're, you know, wine tastings and, and teaching uh, the different etiquettes of, 
of how you clear a table and how you, you know, everything um, that has been probably the biggest challenge of getting the people in the front of the house, which are so important. They're representing everything we do. They're, you know, Caitlin and my voice at the table. And that's so important. So important for not people to not, you know, get the wrong idea or get the, you know, some sort of bad taste in their mouth because they were treated a certain way. And so it's so important to make sure they're equipped with the right information and the right way to handle situations and getting that kind of theory into their head is, uh, is a huge training process. And, you know, people have to want to be there and want to be part of the, the, the restaurant and understand why we do things and, and accept that, embrace it. And, and then get to deliver an experience to, to our, our new guests, you know, so that was huge. And that was, you know, something that we've, I feel like done a really good job with. And coming into the second year, we have such a strong team and a tight-knit family, more importantly, mm -hmm. because uh, everybody who's there is, is really part of the family, part of the group. Yeah. So you're uh, in New York for another little bit here. Yeah. Um, is there anything still on your to-do list to go and eat, or was there anything that you got this weekend that you were really looking forward to? You know what? I, you know, and I was here for a while. And I never got to have it. And I don't know why it's on my mind right now, but the Peter Luger burger, you know, is something that I want to try. I've heard from multiple people that it's, it's legit. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to go eat that. I'm probably going to go eat that after this. Okay. So yeah. you're going to save up. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I've never had it either. Right? It's one of the, it's like kind it of, amazing. That's like a weird yeah. 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 Wow. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, I have another burger recommendation for you. What do you got? The Emmy Squared Burger. Is that right? It's phenomenal. Not cheap. Yeah. But very good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do we know how much the Peter Luger Burger is? I don't think it's crazy. I, I mean, it's expensive for a burger, but yeah. it's it's in the normal New York realm, which is in the 15, 16 range. Yeah. <laughs> the Emmy Squared is like, like 20, 20 to 30. 26? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What is different about that? It's served on a really awesome pretzel bun. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a double. And they, it's, it's really just a really fancy Big Mac. They call it the Big Mat. Okay. Um, and it's some some. It's twenty six. Twenty six bucks. bucks. Comes mm -hmm. with waffle fries, which I'm a sucker for. Yeah. I love a waffle fry. What kind of meat is it? I don't know. Interesting. Unicorn. Unicorn. <laughs> Delicious. Uh, and what else do you have coming up for travel, and what's going to inspire you as we go into the changing I'm season? I'm so excited. We're going to, my wife and I are going to, uh, to Spoleto, um, nice. to Umbria, to, to uh, I'm representing uh, Urbani Truffles at, a, oh, wow. at an event, uh, cooking pasta. So we're going out there. We're gonna, I'm, I'm super excited to, to not only cook there, but get to to be there with Caitlin and get to eat around and, and uh, just have the experience. So it, it'll be amazing. What fun. Yeah, I'm really stoked about that. Awesome. I noticed that there was something on your menu that was from Umbria, yeah. Umbria influence. Is, is that like a favorite region of yours? Do you have a favorite region of Italy? I, I think I take most inspiration from Piemonte. Okay. Um, I love uh, the kind of the, the French influence that it has on, on that. Uh, that region, of course, also, you know, some of the most amazing wine and, and white truffles and all that good stuff come from Piemonte, but um, a lot of sim simplicity as well from there. 
that's uh, that's amazing. Uh, I had a trip there that really uh, influenced a lot of things, like a few specific dishes that uh, I'll take with me forever. But uh, you know, and I, I love Sicily as well. So uh, all over the place, it's hard to it's hard to put one on. But I, I you know, I'm still excited to to go visit a lot more places and, and really get to experience them because they're all so different. You know, they all have their unique things about them. And, uh, taking inspiration from all of them is really easy, you know. Yeah. Um, well, now I'm starving. <laughs> oh, I have one more question. One last you. question. Yeah. Um, we're super excited for Charleston Wine and Food next year. Yes. Yeah. We're going to be back awesome. in the teepees. Awesome. Uh, are you going to be doing anything extra special this upcoming year? So I have a, a killer lunch that we're going to do. Um, we're, we're teaming up with uh, doing these beautiful pairings with uh, Bastianich wines, mm. um, so my old boss, um, <laughs> but uh, I, I still love his, his wine and, and we're going to do a, a really cool lunch. Um, then what else do I have? Uh, I'm trying to remember. We were actually just organizing that right before I left. I had a meeting. So I th there's definitely two other things on the docket, but I'm, I can't remember exactly what they are. We'll add us to your list too. Yeah, combine yeah, these. We will um, also list them on the uh, episode write up for this. Yeah, for yeah sure. definitely. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Chef, thank you so much My for sitting pleasure. down. Thank you for today. having me. Yeah, for sure. Enjoy the rest of your time in New York. I will. One more rally of cooking. Yeah. The jail sure. at the seaport, yeah. and uh, we hope to have you back very soon. Thank you. Thanks thank a lot. You. Thanks. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.